Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 o'clock tonight. Today, where is Turkey heading under Erdogan? With Tim Anderson, Political Economy Department at the Sydney University. The Gene Ethics Network monthly report with Bob Phelps, who's the director. Human Rights and Asylum Seekers with Jack Smith from Project SafeCon and the growing crisis in Venezuela with author and historian Fred Fuentes. And we'll be having Mr Kevin Healy very soon, but just for a couple of moments we're having a song just to so I can get Mr Healy up and running. From every corner of the world they came from all around When in 1851 They struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And caps were getting worse The diggers burned their licenses And vowed to end this curse They swore an oath beneath the southern cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun The crown tried to divide them Giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it They said it's all of us or none They built a stockade While the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The crown conceded everything All of their demands They'd want an end to license fees The right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie Waller and the rest They drew the battle lines And put crown rule to the test The diggers may have lost the battle But they quickly won the day And those shots fired in Victoria Were heard ten thousand miles away They swore an oath beneath the southern cross They'd stand together and break the license laws 
From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun They swore an oath beneath the southern cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Australian Unemployed Workers' Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5 p.m. For tickets, phone 9650-5699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. when influenced by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country experience, Big Supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull announced a new Home Affairs Super Security Ministry. Much to the excitement of Attorney General George Brandy's brain and Minister for Injustice Michael Canem, who haven't got that much left to do, but it makes sense to copy Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country's successful anti-terrorist structure, given they've only had about one terrorist event a week. After all, we believe in world's best practice, and to ensure we get our fair share of terrorist events, what greater guarantee than putting the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, in charge of the show? 
so-called because it's there for show. And Pete displayed his mastery of the portfolio when asked to explain home affairs. It's someone screwing someone they shouldn't at home. Uh, are you sure of that, Pete? Absolutely, no doubt. See, the security bid is taking all precautions to make sure you don't get sprung. Oh, well, thanks for the explanation, Pete. Pleasure. And to reinforce that protection, Malcolm has promised we'll have a heavily armed train killer and a heavily armed train killer trained... Sorry, uh, members of, member of the police force, on every corner. What comfort, what a feeling of security seeing a trained killer and a trained killer trained police person in full military regalia. And if that isn't reassuring enough, don't forget, they'll be under the auspices, the orders of that giant mind, Pete. Last week we mentioned how encouraging the idea True Blue Aussie should enter the space race because we need a new planet to flee to as climate refugees to replace the one we've stuffed up. And given home affairs, train killers on every corner and Peter Duffer, bring on the new planet, I say. Oh, and those silly suggestions based, I suspect, on jealousy that Pete's appointment was a political capitulation to the arch-conservatives of the Conservatives, wrong. Pete was asked that very question the other morning. Is this a political appointment? No, he said. So, that puts that to bed. Obviously, modesty prevented Pete from adding it was based on talent, although, minor point, when is the appointment of a minister not a political appointment. Thankfully, Pete is holding firm against this treacherous claim by the UN of the US of the UN of the world refugee goody-goodies that they had the impression True Blue Aussie would allow no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people with family already in True Blue Aussie to come to True Blue Aussie. Imagine what disruption, what social incohesion that would cause. Rewarding criminality, welcoming criminals whose heinous crimes include fleeing our train killer liberation of where they should go back to. The UN of basing its shocking imposition on our innate goodness on the flimsy evidence that when they ask Pete and Department of Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boat's bureaucrats, could they present a list of no proper papers queue jumpers who have family in Trubla Wazi? Pete and the bureaucrats said, sure, sure. And the UN of took that to mean the criminals could be allowed in. Although we get the impression the UN of goody-goodies feel the criminals are already in. And I'm sure they must also feel Pete's promotion is based purely on talent. And must ask themselves what those not promoted must be like. On that, former Socialist Party Big Supremo Little Kevy Rod for the Workers said when he said no boat person would ever, ever set foot on True Blue Aussie soil, he meant no boat person would ever, ever set foot on True Blue Aussie soil in the next 12 months, revealing our urgent need for a poly-speak handbook. Where's George Orwell when we need him? On protecting the population, protecting the good citizens of Minneapolis and of Minnesota generally, their dedicated force, sorry, police force, known affectionately as the Minnesotas, locked in friendly, fun combat with other forces of law and order across the U.S. of... 
to achieve the highest kill rate for the year. Although in the case of the true blue Aussie woman who made the big, big mistake of reporting a possible sexual assault, we can only assume the minna shooters in the light at that time of day mistook her for a black. Back here, soaring power prices, the market competition. What better example than solving the problem of low power prices by ensuring they're anything but? Absolutely unnecessary. Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headline, Power Price Shock. Lord Rupert's compassion for the thousands, the story read, who can't afford their utility bills, but the only shock would be if people could afford their power bills. The benefits of competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice over publicly owned vertical integration, as promised by former state supremo Jeff Footinmouth and his economic guru Alan Stockdill, when they assured us how much better off we'd be when they handed our bloated hand of the inefficient public sector to their mates. Sorry, to the efficient hand of the private sector. Yet, one report from the Major Energy Users Association and the Business Profits Council, great believers in the market, in competition, argues a major reason for those power price shocks is declining competition. Good heavens, what went wrong? Surely not privately owned vertical integration, because these people all extol the virtues of competition before indulging in the dog-eat-dog bit of the greatest little economic order of them all, which is the essence of the greatest little. Why are the practitioners so surprised when the essence turns up its inevitable results? After all, don't they claim to know all about these things? Apropos of not much at all, a Caroline Springs mother has complained and threatened legal action over a Mr. Munchy sponge biscuity thingy from a manufacturer called Galaxy Food Products she bought for her 10-year-old daughter, whose first and presumably only bite revealed a mouse in the thingy, which was, by the way, dead presumably failed to survive the processed bit, although it may have just nibbled at the salt, sugar and fat rubbish it was cooked in and died of unnatural causes. But, well, it's not often we get a bonus more than we paid for, so why complain, we asked her. Well, it should have been listed on the ingredients. My child's a vegetarian. Okay, fair enough. And in the truth and advertising department, well, that's all they exist for, watching the footy sound down, there's this ad for one of the big two competition policy supermarkets with a bloke at the checkout and his family keep turning up with new products and then one rushes back because she forgot something and he shrugs his shoulders at the people in the queue and they enjoy the joke with him. At which point, of course, the ad loses all credibility. Who ever heard of anyone enjoying being stuck in a supermarket queue enjoying a joke with the person holding them up, particularly since they've abolished the small number of items queue aiming to force us to do the work they used to pay staff to do, which of course we mustn't do, and I hope like me, listener, you put down the small number of items, sometimes just one, and walk out if stuck in a queue of overflowing trolleys. The Modesty of the Week award to Malcolm, after it was noted Donald's new communications guy, is yet another Goldman Sucks X. 
alumni, they coined them, hadn't realized Goldman Sachs was an educational institution, educating the population to love the greatest little economic order. Yet another, joining a long list of White House Goldman Sachs appointments. True Blue Capitalist Review headline yesterday, Goldman Sachs takes over White House. And the journal listed a long, long list of Goldman Sachs exes in influential political stroke financial positions across the world, including, yes, our very own Malcolm, a former Goldman Sachs investment banker. And the Modesty of the Week Award? I used to be a partner of Goldman Sachs, so there's a lot of smart people over the years who have worked for them. A lot, Malcolm. And I'm the lot of them. The journal also pointed out Donald had campaigned to drain the swamp, drain the swamp of corporate special interests and lobbyists, even exploiting a photo of Goldman Sachs' big supremo Lloyd Blank Checks Fine shaking hands with Hillary, accusing Blank Checks Fine of being part of the corrupt establishment, something that would shock Donald to his bootstraps, but I hope the journal wasn't implying you can't believe anything Donald says, because he was correct. They are part of the corrupt establishment. And perhaps Donald believes he needs the corrupt who know all about corruption to drain the swamp. Finally, as little Billy wants to address inequality, apparently a new phenomenon he's just discovered, I want to be equal with Malcolm. I hope no one has the silly, misplaced idea that this burgeoning campaign over super funds by the Minister for Financial Services to the Greatest Little Economic Order, Kelly Oderwire, Evil Union So Evil, has anything to do with addressing the inequality which prevents the big four banks and the Goldman Sachs of this world getting their hands on all that lovely money. Why, she said, there's no connection. Shame, listener, shame for so prejudiced a thought. Good afternoon. Next up on Tuesday Home Time, Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Lots to talk about, Bob, but first, 32 examples of why there is a need for tougher regulation on the new GM techniques. Yes, the Canberra Times did some digging around about the federal regulator, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, and they found that there'd been, in fact, 32 incidents of non-compliance with the safety rules on genetically manipulated organisms from 2011 to last year, including things like vaccines tipped down the sink, sheep grazed on GM trial sites, GM seeds spilled along 29 kilometres of a highway in New South Wales, These incidents gave rise to a story in the Canberra Times which uh, blew the whistle on the Office of Gene Technology Regulator and we called, of course, for them to toughen up their guidelines and the way that they do their business, especially in relation to the new genetic manipulation techniques. Are they regulated by law to publish figures like the Canberra Times found or did they have to do a, a freedom of information to get that information? This was freedom of information. The... Regulator has begun to report only annually now. It used to do it quarterly. I guess those reports are a little bit... They're out on the web, but you have to go looking for them. So there was an FOI involved. It was quite a good summary of of what had gone wrong. What we're more concerned about, of course, is the future and the fact that 
the Office of Gene Technology Regulator has, over the last several months, been assessing options to deregulate a whole bag of new genetic manipulation techniques which are coming along as a result of the invention over the last five years of a whole raft of, of GM ways of manipulating the genome of any living organism, including microorganisms, of course, crop plants, insects, trees, fish, and even human beings. So we want them to get tougher, not weaker on regulation. What reasons do they give for not having those regulations in place? Well, the debate's going on. We're saying, of course, that everything needs to be regulated and the precautionary principle, which is enshrined in the Gene Technology Act, should apply to all these new things. But for its part, many scientists and industry are saying that the Gene Technology Act should not apply, that these new ways of manipulating genes are what they call gene editing, that it's really nothing new, that it's cheaper, easier, safer, and going to be far more profitable, of course, than the old methods of cut and paste. And this is the same song and dance we got 30 years ago about the existing genetic manipulation techniques and their products. So it's the same story all over again. We're gearing up our campaign to try to ensure that the regulator adopts the toughest standards and the toughest rules on these new techniques as well as the old ones which have now basically failed as far as um, commercial crop plants and animals are concerned. Gene editing's a new way of cutting and pasting genetic material but within an existing organism. The old cut and paste techniques involved creating a new piece of DNA which would be transported say from a fish to a tomato to give the tomato the ability to resist frost. Now they're saying, oh no, we've got all the genetic material we need within an organism's own genome, so we'll go into those the genetic makeup and we'll cut and paste there among its own genes, and this will be safer, cheaper, and more efficient, of course. It's just a new set of um, chemical cutting tools that have been invented. Really, it's not a new game, but they're dressing it up as... Uh, a great new vanguard of uh, great things to come in this 21st century, the biotech century. And, of course, um, these new organisms will be patented. When they go to the patent office, they'll say, hey, we've got something new, we've made an invention, give us a patent. But when they go down to the regulator's office, they say, oh, no, this is really nothing new. We've been doing it for yonks. It's nothing much different from what we were doing with traditional breeding and you don't need to regulate us. They can't have it both ways as far as we're concerned and we're going to give them another very good run for their money as we did the first time round. What's the worst case scenario as you see it with this gene editing? Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> that's a big, big question. It depends what you're editing. But I think the critical thing is that these things need to be assessed rigorously by really independent experts before they're let out of any laboratory. The health and safety of humans and animals and the quality of our environment, which of course is in um, free fall and collapse worldwide, should be our number one priority everywhere in the world now because the way we're headed, really, the future of human beings and many other organisms on the planet is really very much in danger. I mean, of course, the very early warning signs are that many of our companion animals, plants, 
microorganisms and so on are going extinct and if we don't do something about it, clean up our act and uh, stop polluting our global environment, then we're going to be next on the extinction list. That's the challenge for us now, is to get our governments to really take things like climate change, environmental degradation, pollution by plastics and industrial gases to be the number one priority, not simply continue business as usual, the neoliberal agenda to uh, own and control everything in the world. It seems to me that if certain powers get their way that groups such as yours could be on an extinction list. (laughs) Yes, well, the deductible gift recipient status of environment groups, in particular those on the Register of Environmental Organisations, which is now administered by the Federal Department of Agriculture, is under attack again, uh, particularly from the mining and other industries and the right wing of the government, people like George Christensen, Canavan and, of course, Cory Bernardi, who now has gone and set up his own Conservative Party in South Australia. These guys are all saying, environment groups bad, you must stop lobbying and advocating for the environment, and we want you to spend at least 50% of any money you get from the public on things like weeding, planting trees, and picking up litter. They're very down on the advocacy and the... uh, militant actions that environment groups are taking and Friends of the Earth of course uh, has been the group uh, most in the firing line along with 15 other active green groups that they want to strip their tax deductible status in order to compromise their ability to raise money to do their crucial work for the environment. And of course this is not the first time that the, the right is targeting groups who advocate for protecting our citizens and our environment. Well, no, of course not. Since the environment movement got going in the 1970s, there have been repeated attempts to do so. This is just the latest and perhaps the greatest of those attempts. There was a uh, Senate inquiry last year. We went there, we told them that things were operating quite well and that um, they should not take that tax-deductible status away. Now that committee has reported and handballed its recommendations over to the Treasury. So Treasury now has a discussion paper out. What we really need, I think, is that since the Charities Commission was established, it's a bureaucracy which is set up for the specific purpose of overseeing the raising of money for a whole range of human rights, social justice and environmental purposes, that people should transition to the Charities Commission which will take an objective view rather than us being under the control of the Minister, in this case the Minister for the Environment, where uh, political interests can get into them, make them do the wrong thing. But if it goes badly, I think the critical point to make is that uh, why don't we send the Institute of Public Affairs out to do weeding and tree planting as well? And indeed, the other big tax-deductible area of uh, fundraising which appears to be immune from this kind of uh, critical evaluation of course as political parties themselves why don't we get them digging up the gardens as well as running the parliaments of this country I think it would be very just it would be great if the listeners could tell Treasury this by the 4th of August which is the closing date for the current round of uh, inquiry at the moment How do they do that? Well there is a Friends of the Earth petition on the web so 
if folks go on the web and Google Friends of the Earth and write a submission to help keep DGR, they'll find it there. DGR is deductible gift recipient, so it should be pretty easy to find that. And then if people want to go to the Treasury documents, they just can Google Treasury tax deductible gift recipients, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, but shouldn't be too hard to find either. You can either do the quick one, which is the Friends of the Earth petition, or go and find the Treasury documents and put in your own submission about those. And, of course, they tried it successfully for a while with AidWatch a number of years ago, but they got it back again. That's correct, yes. In the um, 2000s, uh, AidWatch was knocked off the list, a group doing fabulous work for um, the foreign aid projects and was showing that with political and business interference, the money was really benefiting Australia more than it was the recipients. Well, AidWatch was knocked off took the government to the High Court and got a successful judgment. So that's actually one of the, really the best levers that we have is to say, well, there is a precedent. The courts decided that it was legitimate for the community. And remember, we're talking about 600,000 not-for-profit community groups in Australia, including footy clubs and the whole rest of the gamut of people who raise money from the public are involved here and to just pick out a little few people that happen to be a political thorn in your side and say you can't do that won't wash anymore because of the aid watch judgment it's great that the judiciary took an expansive and a, a correct view about that looking specifically at gm our old friend barnaby joyce is promoting the the old furphy that gm would solve the world's food shortages he never gives up does he well, Barnaby, yes, um, I don't know what we can say about him, really. He had a good um, suntan or a windburn or whatever after he had his holiday in Europe. Yes, that's right. Yes, he was at the FAO in uh, Italy and giving a talk. Kept it short and brief, of course, but his main thing was innovation and genetic manipulation and claiming rather foolishly that there could be an exponential jump, quote-unquote, in food growth as a possible result of genetic manipulation research. And this is why the government wants to kick on with researching new genetically engineered crops, plants and animals. I mean, the silly thing about it is that the evidence is so overwhelming that GM crops don't increase yield. They can do other things like protecting themselves against being sprayed with Roundup herbicide and they can be tricked into producing insect toxins that will uh, kill the caterpillars of certain insects. But as far as increasing yields are concerned, they're an absolute dud. They went nowhere. Farmers are not harvesting more as a result of the genetic manipulation of our crop plants. And I think he should just get his, his story straight. I don't know who wrote it for him, but if it was his department, it's time that we again gave them a wake-up call because uh, it just is not true and the evidence overwhelmingly shows that. And what happened with the GM ryegrass and clover research that was supposed to increase milk production? Well, that was one of the furfies that they've spent so much research and development money on. Who funds all that? Well, it's mostly farmers' levies, and the farmers are getting a little bit furious about not having a say over how their money is spent uh, on researching and developing their uh, particular industries. 
the dairy experimenters and the policy makers knew perfectly well from the beginning of spending this squillions of money on the dead end of GM ryegrass and clover that shoppers and processors had said loud and clear if you develop this grass and you feed it to your cows we won't drink the milk it's sort of rather circular but there are some very blinkered people in the research community who seem to think that they can just ignore the fact that when they come up with a product it needs in the end public acceptance and if you haven't got it there's not much point in doing it and wasting the money. The new development of course is bovine growth hormone which was very controversial 25 years ago in America. The Canadians rejected it after uh, Monsanto tried to bribe Canadian officials into accepting the drug which is, is injected into dairy cows in order to promote more milk production. They now want to bring it to Australia. This is 25 years on it's only been accepted in three or four different countries around the world including most significantly of course the USA where it's extensively used but the history now shows that instead of milking a cow for say seven or eight years you may get two or three years out of it as a result of mastitis and other diseases and disorders that result from uh, injecting these poor animals with with this drug that uh, is designed to squeeze more milk out of them. Of course, they require other treatments like antibiotics, which have a spin-off not only to the animal's health, but to the health of us all as a result of the antibiotic-resistant microorganisms that can result from those treatments. I can remember seeing photos of cows many years ago showing the size of the udders. It was absolutely appalling. Was that the bovine growth hormone? That was, and they still keep those animals, of course, in contained environments. They have a different production system, an intense, confined production system for most of their animals in the USA and for the whole of their lives, whereas, at least in Australia, our feedlotting is uh, brief and at the end of an animal's life. So most of our animals are still grass-fed. They're out there in the agricultural environment, and so our argument on this particular one is, look, there are going to be limited benefits out of any such use of this technology. But on the other hand, we risk the antibiotic resistance, uh, we risk the health and well-being of those animals. This is a major issue for Australia, and we should just say no to this cruddy, bloody drug that they want to bring in here. But... Typically, the APVMA is considering an application from Eli Lilly, which now owns the product, as Monsanto couldn't make it work, and uh, trying to foist it onto the milk drinkers, yogurt drinkers, eaters uh, of Australia by uh, treating our, our milk cows. What's happening with GM canola in Australia? Well, it's really stalled. Uh, this week in the Weekly Times, this quite a lovely graph which shows that although GM canola is still being grown, uh, most of it in Western Australia where they have uh, very serious uh, weed problems and they want to spray Roundup as much as they can, really the whole thing is stalled. It's not going anywhere. And the vast majority of farmers are stay still GM free. There's around nationally about 21%, Monsanto is saying, of the national crop this year is... Uh, 
going to be GM, but most of the farmers remain GM free, and it's pretty clear why. The discounts for genetically manipulated canola just last week, the figures in the rural newspapers in Western Australia were $25 a tonne less for um, GM canola than the GM free varieties. New South Wales, the discount had interestingly jumped from the week before $11 up to $22 to $47, which is a pretty darn good premium uh, when you consider that a GM free canola grower can pick up that extra money. And in Victoria, it was between $10 and $43, depending on which silo the farmers were delivering to. The more remote ones pay a bit less because there's more transport involved in bringing the product into into the city. So good premiums for GM-free, something like 98 99% of all Australian farmers remain GM-free. And that noisy minority, the ones who want to contaminate our environment, and our food supply with genetically manipulated canola should just um, keep quiet and not continue to demand and dictate that their um, crop is the only one that people can grow. Because originally, of course, the industry said this is going to be great, this is going to be wonderful, and really 100% of people are going to accept it. No way, they haven't. South Australia, Tasmania and Northern Territory and the ACT remain GM-free, and the majority of farmers similarly. Where does that GM canola end up? Mostly not in the food supply, although shoppers should look out for generic vegetable oils that claim to be, well, just don't, don't really claim anything about where they came from, and the, there are many of them. They could be cottonseed oil, sunflower oil, canola. A whole variety of oils are mixed in together, so you should look out. But otherwise... They'll be going into things like biofuel production for the um, E10 petrol available at the Bowser and uh, also, of course, into animal feed where nothing has to be labelled and the animals get supplementary feeding from canola and other crop byproducts. So it's not coming mostly in directly into the Australian food supply, which is lucky for us. Nanoparticles. I can remember also a number of years ago, Friends of the Earth activists warning about the dangers of nanoparticles. It's coming more to the fore now, isn't it, because there's much more of it around. Well, yes, and much more hidden too, because, of course, our chemical regulators like the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and even food standards have really ignored the great work that Friends of the Earth Emerging Technology Campaign has done. The latest from FOE, of course, is that they did some testing of infant formulas again at Arizona State University in the USA uh, recently and found nanomaterials in infant formulas. Uh, They had um, seven different products tested. They were collected in Australia and sent over for the purpose. The researchers there found serious amounts of nanoparticles in two of the products. The Nestle's NAN HA1 Gold product and the Nature's Way Kids Smart 1 product. I'm not up with infant formulas, but if people are feeding their kids with this stuff, those are the two products that they should look out for. And of course, as a result of these tests being publicised in the last couple of weeks, Food Standards has uh, come out saying a load of rubbish, 
acceptable, we love this in the infant formula, go away and keep quiet. But they're not going to keep quiet. Well, no, no, they are, certainly are not. So Friends of the Earth did get a good deal of publicity for the test results and hopefully the messages got out there and people are starting to turn their backs on those particular products. How Nestle's and Nature's Way have actually responded, I'm not sure, but uh, there's still scope, I think, for people to leave them on the supermarket shelves and to send a message to Nestle's and uh, Nestle and uh, Nature's Way and tell them uh, we don't want to feed this stuff to our kids. Get it out of the food supply. And we need to reiterate again that breastfeeding is really the way to raise kids, uh, ideally, to get those infants a good start with the immune system boosters that they need from their mother's milk. What's happening in China with their concerns about their future food supply? Well, they're taking the challenge to feeding their probably 2 billion people before too long, uh, very seriously indeed. Serious approach which involves buying up agriculture, chemical and food companies really around the world. The Chinese population has been food insecure in the past. The government did manage to solve that problem. Uh, they've become the economic powerhouse of the world and they're not about to allow their people to starve again. And I think this is a wake-up call for Australia. We can't just sit by and assume by growing broadacre commodities like canola, wheat, barley and the rest of it, not value-adding those products in Australia, just sending them, mining them, shipping them overseas in bulk. We can't assume that that's going to feed Australians in the future. We need to get serious about raising our, our own foods here and ensuring that our region, not only ourselves, but Southeast Asia, which has food problems, the Pacific Islands and New Zealand, that together we work on making sure that our region is a food secure region for kids and grandkids in the future. But at the moment, all of the government research and development money, all of the promotional money that it's got to spend is going into agribusiness, into these big industrial agricultural systems that in the end are going to fall over because the oil is running out, phosphates are running out, water is becoming more scarce, the climate is changing, we've got to do things differently. Ecological systems that inform agricultural production are the way of the future. That's where we should be focusing our research and development. That's where the governments should be focusing the resources that we've got available for the next generation of agricultural production and not keep thinking about those dollars. You know, dollars don't feed us. And so mining Australia's agricultural lands, losing our topsoils and sending those big bulk commodities in bulk ships overseas is not going to serve our kids and grandkids. We need a different way and we've got to keep talking and pressuring our governments to go in that direction. Finally, Bob, BT cotton in India, it's not travelling well. First, what is BT cotton? Well, BT is the insect toxins. They are built into the plant. So the plant produces a toxin, which is short for Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a little microorganism organism that controls the caterpillars of certain insects, gets into their gut, disrupts that. Now the genetically engineered crops, particularly the cotton, can produce this toxin themselves. The problem, of course, is insect resistance. It's a short-term strategy. So what we're currently seeing in India, 
that the strategy is running out of puff, that uh, the BT cotton, which has been grown extensively there, the bollworm is bouncing back, and as a result, Indian farmers are now in strife, and we know that Indian farmers economically live on the edge with the patented seed, the chemicals involved. They really are in trouble when things like the BT cotton start to underperform, which is what they're doing now. We see uh, also that in Burkina Faso, which had gone almost 100% BT cotton over the last decade, last year they went back to growing zero of the GM cotton because the quality became so poor that they couldn't sell their product. We see out there in genetic manipulation land that uh, things are not going well, that there is a turnaround. The old GM systems are falling over. The companies are trying to tell us they've got this whole new crop of things coming along. Don't believe them. Not true. So unsafe. And we need them properly evaluated and regulated before we allow any of the new GM crops in the here as well. It's just a recipe for more work by genetics, uh, which is, of course, we've been doing for the last 30 years. We're going to be 30 next January, and we still need support for GM-free futures from your listeners and uh, the community at large. Thanks, Bob. Um, talk to you in a month's time. Okay. And that, of course, is Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, and I fail to back announce Mr. Kevin Healy before Bob. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything. Hundreds of thousands of Turks demonstrated in the streets earlier this month, the largest opposition rally in years. And there are many reasons, and mainly as a result of the failure of the coup one year ago. Mass arrests, mass sackings, jailing, torture, widespread oppression, injustice, and looking ahead, what one commentator penned, Turkey's dark future. When I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson this morning, lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney, I pointed out that comment that Turkey might have a dark future and asked him, is there also a dark past, which would in some way explain what is happening in Turkey today and in the recent past? Well, of course, I mean, the... um the collapse of the Ottoman Empire was associated with a whole series of genocides that people are still commemorating. They've been commemorating the centenary of this. So the, the, the ethnic cleansing and the extreme Islamism is something that's definitely been associated with the history of Turkey. You know, you would have heard of the Armenian genocide, but there's also a, a lot of the ethnic minorities, and particularly the Christian minorities that were in the Ottoman Empire, have have been commemorating over the last year or so that particular history and of course as Turkey which pretended to have a secular tradition and still indeed does have a secular tradition has returned to that sort of Islamism associated with Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood particularly the Muslim Brotherhood that is indeed at the root of the problems uh, a lot of the problems that they're facing now The military over those years since um the establishment of the, the state of Turkey up to the present time, what's been their role? 
Well, the military in many respects were a key of the secular state, indeed, of many of the Arab states, but in Turkey in particular, and, and for example, uh, you know, an institution like the Egyptian army where people, people could come in regardless of their regardless of their community or regardless of their religion and represent a secular, which I, in my reading of the term in the Middle East, it really means pluralist, basically. It doesn't mean without religion, but it means that there are tolerated or accepted other religions, you know, and of course some of the Middle Eastern states are more like that than others. Syria is probably the most pluralist of all of those sorts of states. Obviously Israel isn't, and clearly the Gulf monarchies aren't, and so on. So the military was a bulwark of, of, of secularism in the Turkish sense, but there's been purges, even before the coup last year, there's been many, many purges by Mr Erdogan of the military and the police. But there were a lot of military coups over those years? Yeah, there was, and um, you know there have been other forces at work in, in Turkey, other power struggles within the ruling party and with the, the Gulenist party, which is also a, another version of, of an Islamist party, but so it's really a question of degrees in terms of the, uh, the extent to which some of the ideologies have dominated Turkish politics. But the military had been resisting that, basically. And I think in recent times, Mr. Erdogan has, to a large extent, crushed or at least had people in fear of it. There's been tremendous repression in the last few years, particularly after the coup. But before the coup, there was this huge purging of the state, effectively, and putting in place as a friend of mine in Turkey, there's an Australian academic in Turkey who talks about this quite a bit, putting in toadies there, limiting the role of the parliament. You know, the recent constitutional change has elevated, has reintroduced a, a, a presidential system. So there's a very strong and rapid movement towards uh, extreme authoritarianism in Turkey. Can you explain the Gulenist movement? Not really. <laughs> the Gulenist movement is a type of Islamism which is a rival to the Muslim Brotherhood Islamism of the of the Erdogan's party. You've got secular traditional secular traditional pluralist forces in Turkey. You've also got uh, and supported to a large extent by minorities, in particular the Alevi minority, which is a more like the Alawis in Syria, more liberal version of of Muslims. And then the Kurds, of course, and, and of course the major military conflict is with the Kurds. But I mean, it's hard for outsiders to see, I suppose, that the the most, the opponent of which Mr. Erdogan is most paranoid is indeed the Gulenists, who to many outsiders seem similar in terms of a version of Islamism, but it's, it's a particular version of Islamism. And who is Gulen? Well, Gulen's an old man who's in exile in the US, and um, the Erdogan believes that um, Gulen was behind the coup attempt last year, about this time last year in Turkey. It's never really been proven. People talk about it, deceptions and so on, but it's extraordinary that that coup attempt, which cost some thousands of lives and ended up with purges, removing tens of thousands of people from the Turkish state, they haven't really made clear who was responsible for it, which is extraordinary. But he's sitting there. He, he, there is quite a big cult around this man, and he does have influence in Turkey, but it seems like he's a bit of a spent force. The... the, the the elephant in the room there is, of course, the role of the U.S. in that coup, and that's not entirely clear either. Erdogan called it a gift from God. There are some yeah. people who actually say that maybe he was behind it. Yeah, there's that suspicion because, you know, well, it's like the 9-11 situation, isn't it? We don't, we don't know 
you know, all the details of what happened there, but um, we certainly know that the incident was exploited for all of the terrible wars in the Middle East. Well, we know the coup in Turkey last year was certainly exploited by Erdogan to carry out another step of, of purging of the, of the Turkish state of all of those who weren't toadies or Muslim Brotherhood people that support him. Just before we go on to talk about those purges, who is Erdogan? Where did he come from? Well, I can't tell you everything personally about the man, except that he's become he his ambitions to play a dominant role in the region have been inflamed in recent years. He's become something of a megalomaniac in in the region, and to some extent, of course, the Syrian conflict seemed to provide that opportunity to him, and he fell into a an alliance with the with Saudi Arabia. Although that's now on the rocks because of the Saudis' rash policies in attacking Qatar, and Qatar being uh, linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a wider network of Islamists in the region. The Saudis, although they have this very similar ideology, a, a Salafism that they share, a sectarian Islamism rooted in Salafist ideology that they share with the Muslim Brotherhood, but the Saudis are very paranoid about losing their influence in the region, so they don't trust the Muslim Brotherhood, even though they collaborate with it quite a lot. So that's why there's a strong link between Turkey and Qatar, because this wider network uh, Erdogan has seen to his advantage, as, as Qatar saw it to their advantage. How important is Turkey economically in the region? It's very important, and like Syria, but it's much bigger, of course, than Syria. It's a crossroads where, for example, it links into Iran. Now, interesting thing is that Iran, although... Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi ideology generally, Al-Qaeda ideology is very anti-Shia Muslim. But for diplomatic reasons, Iran has never cut off from the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar or, um, or Turkey, for example. So the relationship between Iran, which is also another big... I mean, Iran and Turkey are both countries with almost 90 million people. They're very important nations and um, in, in that region. Turkey is playing this role of also a conduit between Europe and the Middle East and Russia to a, to a certain extent because the U.S. strategy of trying to cut off Russia from Western Europe, the U.S. is very paranoid about a, a good relationship developing between Russia and Western Europe. And so with the use of the new regimes in Ukraine, Poland, the Baltic states, blocking those gas pipelines between Russia and Europe, um, the new move has been, even though they're at war, for, in Syria for Russia to develop new pipeline projects through Turkey. So this is an extraordinary and complicated sort of thing that both countries see in their interest. Plus, you have the fact that Turkey or the Turkish leadership is steadily alienating itself from the European Union. For a long time, Turkey had ambitions to become part of the European Union, but that's been blocked for many reasons, and now there's a reaction against it by Erdogan and a reaction against the US too. So there's a, there's a falling out of, of uh, what do you say, partners in the region over the ambitions of Turkey being, being frustrated. What about Russia in terms of tourism? That must be an important part yeah, of, their, too, of yeah. Turkey's economy. That's right. After, after the gas pipeline politics, the, uh, the Russians are the single biggest group of tourists in Turkey, although Turkey, of course, has had a lot of European tourism, Western European tourism in the past, but the Russians are the biggest, biggest single group, so that's, that's economically very important. A lot of Western European tourism has been in decline since the, the conflict in Turkey, of course, which is 
a, a result of Turkey engaging in the war against Syria. How would you measure Turkey's role in Syria and Iraq? Well, it's the key factor in the continuation of uh, foreign jihadist terrorism in Syria. Because of that 800-kilometre border, which Turkey has used to send jihadists from all over the world into Syria. I mean, there's been some coming from Jordan and from Lebanon to an extent, but Turkey's been the most important player in, ever since 2012, really. So unless, there was a, unless there's a good agreement between a government in Ankara and Damascus, um, whatever is happening with the war, the terrorism can continue so long as the Turkish border is, is used as a type of tool against Syria. Even though of course, the reclaiming of Aleppo by the Syrian army was an important blow to those ambitions, and there's still this conflict with um, the Turkish army and the Kurds, and the Turkish army using jihadists against the, the Kurdish forces, which the US are trying to use, so the situation's got very complicated in that sort of respect, but Turkey's been the key aggravant to um, the, the terrorism against Syria. I was in Syria this time last year, when the coup happened in, or the attempted coup happened in Turkey, and they were, they were just celebrating in the streets. They were, they were firing tracer bullets into the sky. Soldiers were kissing taxi drivers, you know. And then, you know, in the cold light of the next morning when the coup failed, everyone was disappointed. But everyone in Syria knows that the, the Turkey was the main problem there. In relation to Iraq, there's this, again, very strange relationship that... Uh, Erdogan has with the the main Kurdish leader Barzani in the north there. That, that is to say, Erdogan is the, sees the Kurds as his main enemy in the region. Most of the Kurds are in Turkey, but they're being driven across into Syria as refugees from the conflict there into another situation of conflict. And the the Kurds in the north of um, Iraq, which gained some constitutional recognition as a regional government there. With the you know with the weakening of Iraq and the fall of Saddam and so on, now there's a referendum to try and get more autonomy from the Kurds in the north of Syria. And strangely enough, Erdogan is supporting it, even though he's completely against it in Syria. Why there's some sort of deal? There's a deal with oil and so on that goes on between the elites in the in the, that little Kurdish or let's say part of the Kurdish area or Kurdish population in the north of Iraq and Turkey. It's a sort of deal that's been cut in Iraq, but while at the same time Erdogan is fanatically against any type of Kurdish autonomy in in Syria. How many Kurdish people are there in Turkey? There's, I think, at least 15 million Kurdish people in Turkey. So that's far more than in Syria, Iraq and Iran put together. And as a percentage of the population of Turkey? As a percentage, well... But Turkey, like I said, it's it's well over 80, somewhere between 80 and 90 million. So they'll be um, less than a quarter, but still, you know, perhaps 15%. That's a big minority, though, isn't it, Tim? Yes, it is a big minority. Uh, so about 18%. And then the Alibis are something like 18 or 20 million, too. So they're another very big minority. So how does he keep the, all these different groups under control? Well with, well, with tremendous repression, with mm. tremendous repression, tremendous repression. That's why I said the army's been purged. It's not just that, you know, it's about a ethnic um, ethnic interest. It's the, the fact that people, there's, there's a significant group of people in Turkey that want a genuine pluralist state, that they believe in the, some of the ideas that Ataturk was associated with, that, that this was going to be an inclusive state. It's degenerated back into a 
a type of a caliphate, basically. And there's been tens of thousands of people purged from the army, from the police, judges, um, thousands of judges, teachers in schools have been purged. The opposition really, the parliament now has a rule where uh, an opposition, an MP can only speak for up to a minute. Then, you know, up to 15 parliamentarians can talk for a minute. So the, the parliament is being shut down sort of constitutionally, paralegally in a way. Uh, of course, a lot of people believe that the the last elections of the constitutional elections were also frauds too, you know. So there's, there's this tremendous repression going on because, well, my friend uh, Jeremy Salt in, in Turkey says that, you know, people are being picked up virtually every day. There's a German Amnesty Inter uh, International official who's never been in Turkey was picked up with 10 or, or 11 others. They've stopped teaching Darwin and evolution in schools and putting jihad into the school curriculum. So there's tremendous and, and dramatic repression and changes going on in Turkey at the moment. Does he completely control the media now that he's got so many journalists either in jail or frightened? Yeah, well, of course, the, you know, the, for quite some time, he's, uh, Erdogan has had um, a, you know, a toady media that's running his government's line. The ones that have contradicted that have been jailed. Many, many of them have been jailed, still in jail, some of them. So it's very difficult for any dissenting media to work there. Same with academics and lawyers. Um, there's some lawyers visited Syria, for example, looking at human rights issues some years ago. They were arrested as soon as they arrived back in Turkey. The academia is similarly um, under that sort of threat that they, if they're foreigners, they'll be kicked out of the country. If they're Turks, they'll be thrown in jail. Can I just clarify his connections with the European Union? Is he part of the European Union or not? No, no. no. Turkey is part of NATO, yeah. but not part of the EU. But it's had ambitions for a long time to be part of the EU. They've been frustrated. They're really almost abandoned now, really, because he, Erdogan has particularly, he feels very resentful at how the Europeans have, have, have treated him, his ambitions. Along the way, you recall the refugee crisis of two years ago, um, the huge flux of refugees that came out of um, Turkey. They were, a lot of them were Syrian refugees, but they were coming from Turkey. It was an orchestrated move by Erdogan to, to play the Europeans, basically. And then he turned on the tap and basically turned it off when he got a deal with the Europeans to, for them to pay him to keep refugees in Turkey. Uh, against a lot of protests, of course, because they weren't in the refugees. They'd come from many, many countries. There was a lot of, there was a lot of Syrians, but they were from lots of other countries too. So, in effect, there was this sort of deal done at the end of 2015, which turned a tap off of the refugees flooding across from Turkey to mainly to Greece to start with. And Erdogan got some billions of dollars out of them for that. But since then, it seems like things have, have soured somewhat because he, his arrogant approach and the fact that he's tried to port his politics across from, from Turkey into Germany, for example, most of the, uh, the largest part probably of the Turkish um, refugees or immigrants have gone to Germany. So there's been a conflict with Germany, which is, of course, at the heart of the EU there. So, so there's that. And Germany, by the way, is also withdrawing its... Um, there's a foment going on on the military and NATO side of things too. Germany is apparently withdrawing some of its forces or perhaps possibly all of its forces from the NATO bases in, uh, in Krilik and some other places in, in Turkey. So there's a, there's a falling out with the military engagement with Turkey at the moment too. He doesn't seem to have too many friends outside the country. No, well, not friends, but, you know, 
allies, you know, or people with shared interests, and that's where where the the strange relationship between Vladimir Putin and and Mr. Erdogan comes in, because you you wouldn't think, given that they're on opposite sides of the war in Syria, that this is likely, but, you know, this is politics, this is strategic thinking, and certainly Mr. Putin has been encouraging this relationship, obviously to get some leverage with, uh, with Erdogan, but also because there are common interests there. The, the US is using Eastern European countries to block gas pipelines into Europe. Um, Erdogan is important for the resolution of the conflict in Syria. So there's a range of reasons why Putin wants to have this strategic relationship. And of course, you know, Russia itself is being attacked by the US. The Western Europe is unhappy with that. A lot of these things are, are coming into play. The politics, the European politics to do with Syria is really pretty much embedded with the politics to do with Russia now. And there's a lot of discontent amongst the Western European countries about the the sanctions against Russia, which are going to affect uh, European interests very strongly. So, you know, the, the aggravation of the, the conflict in the region has really escalated in, in many respects, and it, it, it's exposing the, the divisions or the differences of interest between the US and Europe these days. And the US relationships with Erdogan? Well, that's also difficult because uh, Erdogan blames the US for being behind one way or the other the coup last year. That's one reason why he was more inclined to develop this relationship with, with Russia too. He believes that the Gulenists were behind it, but that the US was behind the Gulenists basically. Um, and no one can really contradict that or, or confirm it. It, it. it seems like the it seems like Erdogan was tipped off and Russia really sided with Erdogan against the coup there. The US didn't immediately condemn the coup and, and Erdogan continues to suspect that they were behind it. Now that's difficult given that Turkey was one of the, probably the major ally that the US had in trying to subjugate Syria and that relationship is now complicated. Can he succeed in his ambition which I believe is a one party state? Well, it, it's very difficult. As, as we've said, you know, Turkey's a very big nation. It's a, it's a big nation. It's a big state. There are, as you've pointed out, substantial minorities, the Kurds, the Alevis. There are people who are not happy with this idea of Turkey being a Muslim Brotherhood state. At the same time, his party does have, a, again, a very large minority domination of, of politics there. So it's not... Uh, a, a pretty picture, basically. That, but the, the conflict, the internal conflict in Turkey, is certainly being being driven by Erdogan's moves towards a one-party state and, and having himself as being all-powerful. Basically, he he almost is all-powerful now. But and of course, anyone that wants to organise against him has got to be extremely careful and ex- extremely secretive, or they'll be they'll all be in jail too. Even so, hundreds of thousands demonstrated recently. Yeah. They're very yeah. brave people. Well, that's true. I mean, people, this is, it's really, you know, looming fascism in Turkey. And not a lot is, uh, is being said about it on the, on the US side of the media. But it's, um, it's really, for the Turkish people, it, it's great tragedy in many respects. I mean, for example, it wasn't very long ago that the Turkish people and the Syrian people had very good relationships, for example. You know, why did that all disappear? Because of the ambitions of this man. Erdogan, you know, it, it, it's a tragedy for those sorts of peoples. Could his power base disintegrate? Well, 
he has a substantial power base. It, it may not, it's not a my, majority of the Turkish people, but it's a large minority, um, and he has a lot of fanatical supporters, you know, so that's why there's a recipe for conflict here, basically. There's probably the majority of Turkish people are against this project, this process that he's involved in, but he has a very, very large minority supporting him, so, and they at the moment hold, uh, you know, control of the state apparatus, most of the military, the media, the education system, you know, so it, it's a very difficult situation. And there must be many people in financial difficulties now, or even worse than that, with all the sackings and the demotions and the killings of people? Yeah, the, um, the, the as I said before, the conflict within Turkey and the the, the blowback of the terrorism that Turkey has sent into Syria has caused damage to the Turkish economy and tourism in particular. So that's also created problems for, for people there. You might have seen uh, not too long ago, because of, of the collapse of ISIS in, in many parts of Syria, that uh, when some Syrian refugees in Turkey were allowed to go and visit their families at the end of Ramadan, that there was a flood of, of thousands of the people over the, over the border back into Syria. It was supposed to be a gesture for the aid at the end of Ramadan, but, um, you know, and there were some conditions on they could return to the camps, you know, if they returned in a certain time, but I suspect a lot of those people are going back to their homes and not going back to Turkey. It's not a very, not a very savoury thing for it to be living in those sorts of tent cities that were set up in Turkey, and, and there's millions of people, have been millions of people there, including the, trans, uh, the transitories, you know, the ones coming from Iraq and coming from Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, for example. I met some of them in, in Greece last year. So um, I think a lot of those people are keen to get out of those camps long there. They've been controlled by the jihadists too, uh, by Jabhat al-Nusra and, and associated groups. So um, th there's all this, you know, you, you've had refugees from Iraq going into Syria, which has a war, and from Turkey going into Syria, which has a war, you know, so it's an extraordinary situation where you've got refugees going into war zones because of the war zones in, in the areas that they, that they live in. You mentioned your friend Jeremy Salt. How free is he to carry on his work that he does there? He can't um, speak freely when he's in Turkey, basically. He's, constant, he's been there 20 years, but he's constantly paranoid about the, the fact that he's a foreigner and they can kick him out at any moment, basically. Um, I invited him a couple of times to visit Syria, and he really wanted to come over. And he's, prob he's probably the leading Australian expert on, on the Middle East, really. But he is um, really has to be extremely careful about what he says there because Erdogan will kick him out of the country straight away. He's a senior academic who is a specialist in Middle Eastern history and Ottoman history, you know, and he's been in Ankara for, at the University of Bilkent for, like I said, 20 years. But um, he can't speak freely. There was a lot of purging of university staff. Yes. Many of his colleagues probably gone. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Lawyers, academics, trade unionists, journalists, school teachers, magistrates, the, across the board. Not a good place to be at the moment. No, no, a very difficult, very difficult thing, a tragic thing for, for Turkish people and for their neighbours, the Syrians in particular. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that was Dr Tim Anderson... Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at the University of Sydney. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR where the time now is nine minutes past five o'clock. Brain down, 
stomach of a man, bring it to its heel. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Early this morning I spoke with Jack Smith in Narragin, Western Australia, who's part of Project Safecom. We talked about the most significant reform of intelligence and security arrangements in more than 40 years, or that's what we've been told, with Peter Dutton named as the man in charge of a new super portfolio, Home Affairs Minister. Here's his reply. Let's just unpack it from the start, because Peter Dutton, one of the most senior ministers to be in the Turnbull government. Well, let's not forget that Peter Dutton is the old ally of Tony Abbott. So this is the conservative branch of the Liberal Party, the extreme conservative branch, against Turnbull. And so Turnbull is on an appeasing mission, and the appeasing mission includes uh, giving Dutton everything he wants. And what hardly anybody knows, it has been reported, by the way, in the Fairfax Papers, when Turnbull became the Prime Minister. It has been reported that there is a signed agreement within Cabinet. It was a signed agreement between Turnbull and the Nationals, so Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce, that during his entire period of Prime Ministership, he would not touch or change the asylum seeker policy in place. And that has been reported, but no reporter, no journalist around the country remembers it. But it was reported on at the time. That's the core issue at stake here. We will be as strict to these illegal invaders who came by boat. We will keep blaming Labour for being weak on border protection, because the only thing that works, and it's in effect that division that rhetoric was created during Ruddock and Howard, and the Liberals desperately maintain that to create a point of difference and so they can keep blaming Labour for being weak on border protection. That is the political agenda, and Turnbull signed off that he would not ever, ever change it. So the Turnbull, the moderate, has been well and truly completely hung from the gallows. There is no head on this man. He's been chopped off at the guillotine. Turnbull is a completely powerless puppet on this policy issue. So there we go. Turnbull offers this. He's had a little conversation with Theresa May about the Home Office in, in the UK. And suddenly, without anyone recommending this, we have this super ministry. Now, I'm a bit with Bruce Haig, the former diplomat and good, well-known refugee advocate, who said, okay, how soon from now will GetUp become a proscribed organization? You know, the liberals, including Turnbull, despise the power that civil organizations like GetUp have. It is because of these activist organizations that they're going to lose 
elections. And even more so, GetUp has declared quite openly they're targeting Peter Dutton from now until the next election. They did quite a bit of it during the last election campaign, so that Dutton is a really marginal seat holder at the moment who almost got kicked out at the last election. The most obvious next step, according to Bruce Haig, is that Dutton will try to taint GetUp as having received funds from people connected to terrorism. There will be a raid on GetUp, and GetUp will become a proscribed organization. This is what happens when you have a fanatic, extremo-conservative minister like Dutton with enormous powers. And by the way, news articles have appeared over the last week that the new super ministry, if need be, will investigate itself for corruption. So that it happens internally. It doesn't happen in public inquiries. That will happen during secret inquiries. We will never know how corrupt or where corrupt or what the corruption was within that ministry. It is a completely self-governing super ministry. Dutton will become the most powerful ogre or monster who will target anyone who in his world or little plod from Queensland that he really is, Mr. Potato Head, anything standing in the way will be declared illegal or um, connected to terrorism ultimately will be prescribed. That's the nightmarish situation we're looking at. And of course, we know what Dutton is like. Whenever something happens, he will blame Labour, he will blame the Greens, and I wouldn't be surprised that first he's also going to taint little political groups on the left, like the Socialist Alliance, as being connected to terrorism, and ultimately his secret, vile wish is to proscribe the Greens as well, to taint the Greens as being connected to terrorists and socialists, extremo activists, as those who are lined with get-up. There's a prospect. Dissension within the Liberal Party, though, for this move? Well, there was dissension, but it seemed to have melted away within a day. We know that Julie Bishop is on the record of being dead against this super-ministry. We know that Christopher Pine objected to it. We know that um, Michael Keenan, Minister for Justice, was opposed to it. So the senior ministers in the Turnbull government have expressed that they are absolutely not wanting this, and yes, it happened, without so much as a peep. Well, some of those ministers have lost their power, haven't they? They've become gutless wankers within the ministry. I mean, if they would have had any guts, they would have created a hell and fury during last week's cabinet meeting. But they didn't, because they are wanting unity in this political party, which is not exactly um, exploding with unity at all, as we know. They become gutless puppets. These days, the new thing in world politics is we put the idiots in charge. And that's the blunt end of it. We put the idiots in charge, like in Donald Trump. We make idiot decisions, as in Brexit. And David Cameron, you know, with a whistle, whistling a song, walks in and out of um, 10 Downing Street and then resigns. I mean, it, the conservatives have made an absolute schmuzzle of governing a country anywhere around the world. 
and uh, Australia's following suit. First, we had a Donald Trump in uh, in Tony Abbott, and he got kicked out by Turnbull, the moderate. Well, another idiot in charge, Peter Dutton, Mr. Potato Head. That's the new idiocy of politics. We cannot find a way out into decency. Certainly, we don't want decency, because that's what lefties do. We want um, to find a solution, so we put the conservative idiots in charge. Let's look at the push by the, the government to legislate substantial changes to make it more difficult for people yeah, to become of, citizens. It's more of the same. It is. For me as a migrant, I'm a Dutchman. I came in 1980 to Australia as a migrant, uh, fully assessed, fully approved. That only took eight, nine months. And uh, I got all the bonuses and subsidies from the government for the travel and for the moving of my property in a container to Australia. It was all subsidized by the Australian government. Never looked around. And oh, I one day I'll become an Australian citizen. And it looked really hopeful and beautiful and decent during the Hawke and Keating period. I got work as a result of government funding in many areas, uh, mainly in employment creation, assisting Aboriginal people, training Aboriginal people. I had a lot of fun. And I thought one day I'll become a citizen. And then, of course, John Howard came. He changed some of the restrictions. Well, he put a lot of restrictions into dual citizenship between the Dutch and the Australians. So I lost a lot of opportunities there suddenly because that contract with the Dutch government was signed. Um, I can no longer become a dual citizen. So I kept my Dutch citizenship. And as Howard proceeded with his uh, fanatic conservative agenda, I kind of lost interest in becoming an Australian citizen. And now, thank God, I've got a degree and a postgraduate degree because I need it if I want to pass the exam. It's now a university-level exam, almost. There will be another class to which I belong. The millions of people that do not become Australian citizens but are permanent residents. And eventually, if Dutton gets his way, he will um, affirm that they're an underclass of not real Australians. So he'll put uh, the thumbscrews on uh, the permanent residents who are still um, citizens of their own home country, like me. Eventually, this group is the ultimate target of the conservative liberals. And that may happen, that over the next 10 years we will see the thumbscrews being put onto people who live here permanently and are not Australians. What about the 7,000 that are facing deportation by the 1st of October? What's going to happen to them? I don't really know because there is a lot of really good lawyers working really hard on it. And Dutton will be found to lose a lot of court cases. What is just breaking news today, for instance, is that Dutton again lost a court case. Two bikies, he had scheduled them for deportation because they had been in jail for crimes. They were former associates of bikie gangs. And the federal court just overruled Dutton. Now, we know that Dutton, of course, has a lot of rulings against him from the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the AAT, so he kicked all those good people out and replaced them together with George Brandes with 50 new people who are dancing to his tune, hopefully, for him. But he, he cannot yet touch the federal court. If the federal court decides Dutton, 
you've been an idiot. We overrule your uh, ruling, and we overturn your ruling. Then Dutton is still powerless. But I'm sure he's already drafting a bill, hopefully passing the Parliament with a bill that at any time he can ignore a federal court ruling. That's the next phase into the lawlessness of this country in the area of, of asylum seekers and refugees and criminal deportees. This is the lawlessness that Dutton, the former policeman from Queensland, wants to entrench. Um, Dutton has become an, a moron, but we will not say that because he's, of course, a minister. We cannot say that. Dutton, who will entrench even more so than ever before, because it's always immigration ministers who do that. Immigration ministers, together with the immigration department, are always want to entrench lawlessness and entrench the reach of their own power over the courts. The courts should always lose when it comes to an immigration minister. That's their position, and Dutton is doing whatever he wants to do to even entrench that. And when, it, uh, when he's in the, in, in the corner, driven in the corner, he'll blame the Labour Party or the Greens and the left-wingers. Does, this, get up. does this power that he's got now mean that Abbott's not going to get back? Oh, Abbott will not be back. No, no. It's, it's been uh, quietly agreed amongst, in conservative circles that um, Dutton will be the new Tony Abbott if it comes to that. If the conservative faction in the Liberal Party wins, and they will not, by the way, because they don't have the numbers, if they win, it will be Dutton who will be the Prime Minister. Can you imagine him going overseas and speaking with world leaders? Mm, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had experience now. We've seen Donald Trump do it. It's not a good look, is it? Well, it's, it's just shocking. But coming back to my original statement, we put the idiots in charge. That's the new politics. In the new politics, conservatives cannot, cannot be on the side of the people and of the people movements. So they want to entrench their power, and they can only do that when they put the idiots in charge because their philosophy is dead. We've been talking about courts just recently. There's the recent federal court ruling in WA recognising an exclusive natal title claim in that state over the rich Pilbara, and that's upset Mr Of course it upset him, because in the beginning of this court case, he made sure he divided the Aboriginal community, and he made sure that he supported a little split of um, native title claimants group that were split off from the big group. He was, of course, discovering that those, that split off group was on his side. He ran the whole thing with that small split off group to get his way. And now what's feared is that the court case has decided, well, yeah, it is a split off group, but um, we take the whole group, not just a split off group, and guess what? Here's the outcome of the native title case. It's a major case. And what is more, now has to cough up compensation. And of course he will um, try to appeal. But he will be found wanting because he will not be successful in that appeal. So it's actually quite simple. But of course he wants to paint himself as the great benefactor who fights slavery around the world. But of course... His attitude towards Aboriginal people is not at all one of self-determination. He is the same paternalistic wanker 
that uh, joins all the other paternalistic wankers of the white invaders that have been uh, putting uh, smoke in the, in the eyes of Aboriginal people for centuries. He is just another paternalistic standover merchant. He says that as it is, that's our friend Jack Smith from Human Rights Group in Narragin, Western Australia, Project Safecom. 26 minutes past five, you could be listening on 3cr.org.au. It streams for a whole week, so if you've just tuned into the last part of the program, you can listen to the whole program on your computer, 3cr.org.au, or if you'd like to listen to the program at your leisure, there are the podcasts at the same page. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. There is no doubt that the Venezuelan revolution is facing its biggest challenge for over a decade. But how much truth is there in reports in the corporate media as to the reasons for the crisis and those behind the violence and the deaths in recent months? I'm speaking with journalist and author Fred Fuentes. And Fred, I'd like you to first focus on what the general public in many countries, including Australia, are being told about the situation in Venezuela, the bias and even outright lies perpetrated by media outlets to demonise the Venezuelan revolution. Can you give us some recent or not so recent examples of that bias? Yes, well, look, I I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, what we've been seeing, which is obviously nothing new when it comes to a lot of the the corporate-run media, is a a real distortion of the reality of what's happening on the ground, whether that be through uh, deliberate falsification, whether that be through uh, obfuscation, whether that be through turning things on their heads. And I think perhaps there's no clearer example of that than the way the media has been talking about the, the recent deaths that have occurred as a result of the political violence. When someone turns on the TV, opens up their newspaper, they simply read the latest death toll, which uh, the, the current figure that I, if I recall correctly, is, is just over 100 now, reaching 110 people that have died. And the media will generally present this as 100-plus people have died in anti-government protests uh, that have been repressed by the government. So any reader would, of course, draw from that the impression that obviously all these people have been killed as a result of government repression. Yet the actual figures show that of that entirety of of the deaths that have occurred over these last essentially three, getting onto four months now, only a small minority have been directly the result of security forces, be that police or or the National Guard. 
In fact, a far larger amount of people have died as a direct or indirect result of the protesters' actions themselves, whether that be uh, National Guards or police officers that have been shot at and killed, whether that be people who have been suspected of being government supporters who have been near opposition protests and then have been set upon, beaten, set alight and killed, uh, whether that be people who are in an attempt to try to get past a lot of the street blockades that opposition protesters have set up, not in main highways but in people's neighbourhoods so that they're essentially the hostage in their own home. As people have tried to get past that, of course, traffic accidents have occurred and people have died as a result of that, or even indirect deaths as a result of that, people not being able to get to hospital for critical, critical care uh, simply because of road blockades being set up right in front of the house and opposition protesters refusing to let them go through. Yet this, this very simple fact that any journalist could easily come across and, and be able to report as an unbiased fact uh, is just ignored by the media. He's just papered over and he's instead presented to the world as over 100 deaths at the hands of a, of a repressive government and not as what, what we're actually seeing, which is a, a, an increasingly violent and, and the death toll is rising rapidly in the last few days because of the escalation of violence by right-wing opposition protesters who have gone from rocks and molotovs to homemade rockets attacks on military uh, bases and who in the, in the most recent weeks have now started to appear uh, at protests with, with assault rifles. Um, you know, these are the kind of actions that are occurring that, which in any other country would automatically be deemed by the media and government as a terrorist act, particularly a, a, an attack on a military base with a rocket launcher, and yet the media presents this as peaceful democratic protesters in Venezuela. We're also, I believe, given the impression that the protests are countrywide. Is that true? No, well, see, this is a, another sort of distortion that is occurring uh, in the media. I, I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying that I don't want to downplay the protest or, or pretend that it's just five or ten people. Uh, there is clearly a lot of issues, a lot of problems that Venezuela is currently facing, and there are clearly a lot of people, arguably not, not a majority, but certainly not a tiny minority, who are uh, discontent with the current situation and blame the government for that. But when we actually start to break down and look at where the majority of these protests are happening, they tend to be localised, firstly by what you could call class demographics, so they largely tend to be confined to, although not exclusively, but overwhelmingly confined to middle and upper class areas. We also see that they're largely confined to neighbourhoods or municipalities that are already governed by the opposition uh, mayors or, or in some cases states that are governed by opposition governors who in many cases, uh, because of the police force being uh, quite municipalised in Venezuela, uh, that is that you know, it's not just a national police force but there's regional police forces and municipal police forces in those opposition areas. The, oppos the, the police force controlled by the opposition is quite happy to let the protesters violently loot, destroy government buildings and stand back and, and watch. So we see a, a protest movement that's largely based, it's certainly its core is in the middle upper class areas, it's certainly in areas that are governed by opposition. And the flip side of that is that we see many, many regions in the country uh, where these protests uh, do not exist. Again, that does not mean that there is no discontent in those areas. It does not mean that there is any opposition. But many people in, in the poorer areas, many people in the rural areas, look at these violent protests um, that are happening in some of them 
the opposition controlled you know, parts of the capital city. And, and just as they might be discontent with the government, are equally or more so opposed to the violence uh, that is currently occurring in Venezuela and fear what this political movement could do if they were to actually get into state power. Can you talk about the issues that are fermenting this discontent and the reasons for them? Well, look, I, I think they largely have to do with some of the, the very big economic problems that Venezuela has been confronting now, uh, certainly for at least uh, probably three three to five years, you know, depending on exactly when you want to pinpoint the start of it. Now, these are economic problems that can largely be drawn down to, to three big issues. Uh, firstly, and the one that obviously the, the media talks about the most, uh, is the, the falling oil prices that you know, we had in 2008, 2009, an oil barrel that was over $100, uh, and at certain points in the last few years has dropped down to about 30 I think at the moment it's about $45 a barrel, but that's less than half than what it was only a few years ago. And for a country that continues to be very oil dependent when it comes to its exports, and, and oil exports is by far the, the biggest, one of the biggest contributors to the government's income, this has had a big pressure on the government's ability to maintain its social spending, on its ability to maintain the sort of programs uh, that it is, is done in order to promote production and productivity uh, in the country. So we have oil prices is one issue. A second issue, again, which one that the media talks about, is the currency control system that's been established in Venezuela since 2003. Now, this is a currency control measure uh, that was largely implemented. It must be recalled that in 2002-2003, there was a military coup attempt against the government. There was also a three-month, a two-month shutdown of the oil industry carried out by pro-right-wing management of the oil industry that forced the economy to contract by 25% in one quarter and had devastating impact. In the aftermath of those two big battles and in the context of where capital flight saw dollars rushing out of the country as an attempt to sabotage the economy, the government brought in currency controls. This currency control means that the dollars coming into the country go into the hands of the government and people have to apply to the government to be able to get access to, to these US dollars. Now, this system, of course, creates a distorting impact on the economy, uh, one that for a long time did not have, have a big issue, but one that today I think most people, even government supporters would argue, needs to be dealt with in some form or other. Uh, of course, it's much easier to say something needs to be dealt with than to actually find a, a solution to that problem, uh, particularly when there's no doubt that elements of corruption have infiltrated into that currency control system. So the government has a dual problem of fixing the currency control system and combating corruption that has emerged in the existing one. But the third element, which almost never gets talked about in, in the media, is the concerted economic war uh, that had been carried out by private business in, in Venezuela. Not at all dissimilar to what we saw in Chile in the lead-up to the 1973 coup against Salvador Allende. Uh, exactly what, at that time, the US government was referring to as making the economy scream uh, is what we're seeing today in Venezuela. If there's a continued boycott, continued hoardage of, of goods, uh, continued contraband of products that have their prices regulated in Venezuela being illegally smuggled over the border into Colombia where they can be sold at, at much higher prices. And all of this is being done to sort of heighten the discontent against the government and to the point where we now see as part of the most recent wave of protest the deliberate burning of you know, supermarkets, storage facilities for government-supplied food chains, all of these kind of actions that are being used to further stoke discontent uh, in the population by exacerbating 
uh, the already quite serious uh, economic crisis. And, and, and we see that not just in the opposition protesters, but the opposition politicians themselves who have prided themselves on saying that they've been going around the world to banking institutions to tell them not to do business with the government. How can you complain about economic problems and yet at the same time campaign to exacerbate them by cutting off any supplies uh, to any loans or funds that the government could, could be able to access uh, in order to try to remedy the current situation? It's clear from the opposition's viewpoint they're quite happy to destroy and starve the country if it means, as a result of that, the current government falls and they can return to power. Has the government over those years that this hoarding has been going on attempted to find an alternative to these companies who are doing it? Uh, look, the, the government has set up a, a number of uh, alternatives dating back a number of years because this, this has always been a big concern of the government, the food distribution. And, and, and again, you know, just one more way that the media uh, distorts the reality of Venezuela. This issue of food distribution has now been an issue for, for quite a while in Venezuela because what we're seeing is that although food production in Venezuela has been increasing uh, over the last decade, it has not been able to compete with the rapid rise in consumption that's been fuelled by the increased money that has been coming into the pockets of ordinary poor people. So the difference between Venezuela today and the Venezuela of the poor Chavez is that the poor people didn't have money. They didn't have the money to be able to go to the shops to, kind of, to buy the kind of produce that they buy today. So there was no shortage. They didn't make it in the media because it didn't matter. It was just poor people who couldn't afford food. Well, Chavez, the government, realised very quickly that as people's consumption increased, as people's wealth increased, they needed to be able to make sure that food was able to, that you know, key basic goods were reaching the, 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 the poor, and hence why they introduced things like price controls as well to ensure that uh, speculators or profiteers couldn't try to make money uh, or try to you know, basically steal that money back off workers that they were winning through increased wage rises or whether they were getting through social, social subsidies and they couldn't steal that back off them by in, you know, dramatically increasing the, the price of foods. So they've implemented things like Mercal, the state-run supermarket chain. Uh, they've tried to involve the military more in, in the distribution of, of food produce, uh, creating, you know, basically nationalised the ports because that was a big sign of corruption and big problem of where the importation of, of food was being a lot of times being hoarded, being left to rot. So there have been measures that, that have been taken, but they have not been able to as yet either continue to match that rise in consumption to really put the pressure on the private business who are behind a lot of this, this economic war. And thirdly, being able to deal with the, the, the corruption that has always really existed in the Venezuelan state. You know, people, the media talks about corruption now, but it's, it's not like before Chavez there was no corruption. That corruption existed before, and, and unfortunately it still continues to exist today, and the government has really not been able to fully tackle that in, in the context of, of the current economic problems that it's facing. What measures has the government taken over the years to diversify exports to get away from that reliance on oil? This is an important point to, to make here. If we look at the statistics, actually Venezuela has become more dependent on oil exports. What I mean by that is that oil exports represent a bigger percentage of its exports than it did before Chavez came to power. But one could easily draw from that the conclusion that that just means actually Venezuela is going in the opposite direction. It's less diverse uh, than what it was 15, 20 years ago. But I think two things have to be taken into consideration. The, firstly, these percentages are taken on the context of the value and not the quantity. 
So in actual fact, Venezuela's oil production and oil exports have not risen, and what has risen is the value that they've been getting for their oil. And even today, with a barrel only half the price of what it was a few years ago, it's still far above what it was when Chavez first came to power, where it was roughly about 5 or $7 a barrel. Today, it's, it's $44. So that's obviously going to have a distorting impact on the figures. Secondly, is that the government has taken a pro- has prioritised production for internal consumption. As I mentioned before, as people's poorer people's you know wages have increased, as their social the money that they're receiving from uh, social benefits has increased, the government has been making an extreme effort to try to produce in order to meet ordinary people's needs within the country, and that's always been the priority. So most of the production that has increases that have occurred uh, over that period have been largely aimed for the internal market. Having said that, the government has tried to uh, sign contracts in terms of broader process of regional integration, uh, particularly with neighbouring Brazil, which is a very big manufacturing uh, country, to be able to start to export some parts to Brazil. Uh, We've also seen, you know, contracts that have been signed uh, with with other countries, larger countries like China uh, as well, that have been, or with Iran, that have tried to increase uh, or to, to have involved in those contracts the transfer of technology so that Venezuela can begin to diversify its country. But really, its economy, but really the, the, the key focus of the government has been maintain the, the oil industry, which the opposition for a long time tried to sabotage and destroy as part of bringing down the government and you know, bring it back up to a fully functioning level and redistribute the wealth from that in order to help increased production for internal consumption. Um, That's really been the the key focus of the government. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with journalist and author Fred Fuentes about the situation in Venezuela. Are there examples overtly as well as covertly of US sabotage of the country? There's plenty of examples, uh, you know, and we can date that back almost to Chavez's election campaign. And then we can, you know, fast forward from 1998 when he was elected uh, to the numerous statements made by U.S. State Department officials uh, in the early years of the Chavez government. The U.S. and Spain being the only two governments to come and recognise the coup government uh, that came to power in, in April 2002. I could, you know, talk to you through every year, but if we just fast forward to the last few years, we've seen, for instance, the sanctions that both the Barack Obama administration uh, has imposed on Venezuelan government officials and also the the sanctions that have been maintained and and proposed to be extended by the Donald Trump administration, including talk of possible broader economic sanctions and, and even you know, raising the, the idea that there may be, you know, a boycott or sanctions on oil exports from Venezuela. We've also seen the decrees that have been used, again, implemented first by Obama, maintained by Trump, that have declared Venezuela to be a threat to U.S. national security. $15 million of funding uh, that has gone from the U.S. government to opposition forces just in the last few years, uh, either directly to political parties or indirectly to NGOs that have helped train uh, many of those that are involved today in, in the protests against the government. So there is a lot of evidence of collaboration between the U.S. government and the right-wing opposition in Venezuela. And this is, again, nothing new. This is historically what the U.S. has done, and it's what its foreign policy continues to be towards Latin America in terms of any kind of progressive government helping to the opposition in order to return them, return them to power. I think perhaps 
the most in, in, indicative and the most dangerous escalation of this really is Trump's most recent statements where he, he has made it clear that he says that, you know, he believes that he, he's, he's made the decision that Venezuelans oppose the government, irrespective of any vote that, is, that, is, um, that has occurred to, to prove that. Uh, he's decided that then he will not stand by, as, and as he calls it, let Venezuela crumble. And he's talked about strong and swift actions and sanctions against Venezuela, all of which have only helped to further motivate and give the impression to the right-wing opposition that they are on the verge of finally bringing down that government that they've been campaigning against essentially since 1998. Is there any evidence of American support for Colombia, economic support for Colombia to destabilise Venezuela from the border areas? Well, the US has always had a very close relationship uh, with Colombia. I mean, it's, it's sort of uh, often described as, as sort of... The, is, Colombia is described as kind of the Israel of, of South America is very much a beachhead for the US policies in the border region, particularly because it's strategically located, connecting Central and, and South America. Having said that, the, the, the Colombian government itself has had many reasons, particularly because of its, its right-wing nature, to really sort of uh, uh, heighten tensions with Venezuela. And that is another sort of facet of the campaign against the current government of attempting to isolate, which is very much ramping up the friction on the border between Venezuela and Colombia. And that's, that's, that's nothing new. That, that has been on an on and off issue now for, for a number of years. Uh, but which is very ironic given the, the, the huge role that actually Venezuela has played in trying to help along the peace process uh, that is occurring in, in Colombia itself. Uh, you know, a country that, if we want to talk about the media hypocrisy, you know, it's, it's constantly ranked one or two in the world for being the most violent, most dangerous place because of a 50, 60 year long civil war combined with the presence of active para, right wing paramilitaries. Uh, and, and the huge drug trade that occurs in that country, and yet a country where every four days a social leader is assassinated, and none of this makes the, makes the media. And Venezuela has actually been playing a very active role in trying to resolve that situation, of course, always respecting the national sovereignty of Colombia and always trying to do that by working together with the government. And, it, and its response has been to help be part of this campaign to isolate Venezuela by heightening tensions on the border and, and mobilising troops in that direction. In the last week, there was a call by the opposition for a general strike. What was the result of that? There was a, a general strike that was called for last Thursday. And, of course, again, you know, he, here it really depends on, on who you want to believe to, as to the success of it. But I think if you were to really read everyone's viewpoints, you know, so you, you find the most extreme right-wing view, the most pro-government view, and really try to get a balance sheet of what occurred, firstly, there was no doubt that there was a, a very strong sort of protest that occurred that day. Whether you could call it a strike, as generally defined, that is, workers not turning up to work, though is, is questionable. And what we saw was in, in largely in the middle and upper class areas, those areas that I pointed to as being the epicenters of the opposition protest, there was almost a complete shutdown. And this was largely shopkeepers, you know, businesses themselves, just basically shutting down, combined with these road blockades that I mentioned that are, you know, essentially, you know, if you did not want to be part of the strike, you kind of didn't have a choice because you'd have to go through the opposition road blockades that were not interested at all in letting people uh, be able to travel. Even journalists from news services like Reuters and AP had to admit that in the poorer areas or in terms of Caracas, which is the western side of Caracas, business, while perhaps not 100% as usual, largely functioned as, as it normally does. So again, it, it shows that you know, what we see today in Venezuela, far from being a, a simple, 
people versus the government shows that there are really two important political forces. And I, I want to, again, emphasise that everything I'm saying is not to say that the, the opposition are tiny, irrelevant, they, they don't exist. There is a big opposition movement, but there is an equally, if not larger, pro-government movement in that country, in a country that today finds itself in somewhat of a stalemate, where neither side can, and hopefully won't, try to impose themselves over the other, and where, you know, a, a real way or a genuine way of trying to find an alternative that doesn't take the country down the road of civil war or a military coup would involve some kind of dialogue and negotiation. And that's certainly what President Maduro has stressed, the need to sit down and let's talk and try and find um, a way out of this, a political way to find a political way out of this and a way to solve some of the, some of the economic issues that are occurring. So unfortunately, it's, it's a kind of talk that we hear from the Trump administration. It's a kind of a biased media reporting that simply, you know, presents the, the opposition as the absolute majority is on the verge of victory, that every death is worth it and present any death that occurs is just blamed on the government. This kind of distorted media coverage together with the, the diplomatic pressure being applied that seems to be pushing the country further and further to the abyss rather than pushing it in the direction where it should be going, which is dialogue and, and negotiation. And it's understandable why so many people support the government for the changes that have happened in Venezuela since 1998. There's two very important reasons why there still continues to be a very significant support for the government. Uh, and this, this support is, you know, while the media tries to hide it, and that is part of the media campaign to basically pretend that there is no, no support of the government, has been expressed on numerous occasions over the last three months of protest whether that be through very massive street mobilisations, like, you know, for instance, just off, you know, the first one that comes to my head, the one that occurred on May, that which saw hundreds of thousands uh, turn out on, onto the street, whether that be by the practice run of the constituent assembly elections that happened the same time that the opposition consultation happened on July 16, where, again, we saw a very strong presence of pro-government supporters turning out for that. And I'm sure we will see that, and I know the opposition knows that we will see that for the constituent assembly elections uh, this weekend, hence why they are calling for protests at the polling booths to stop people from being able to vote. It's sort of, you know, one will wonders why the journalists don't draw the contradiction of saying, if no-one supports the government, why are you bothering to turn up to polling booths to stop people voting if no-one's, you know, if you say no-one's going to be there? But the people continue, or at least an important section of the people, continue to support the government. One, because they remember what it was like before Chavez, and they know that the real social gains that have been made under the Chavez government have not been completely eroded while they have been heavily attacked by the current economic crisis. They are far from returning to the situation they were beforehand. And secondly, they've been repulsed by the level of violence which, as, as I said, it, 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 we're talking about not just violent protests, but a number of targeted assassinations that have been, been occurring. For instance, uh, not long ago, one of the candidates for the Constituent Assembly in the middle of an election campaign meeting was shot 11 times in the face. Uh, we're seeing trade unionists who, who have also been, you know, had their bodies basically, uh, you know, uh, burnt. Uh, we're seeing pro-government supporters that have been set upon, lynched, you know, strung up in, in the streets. Uh, and, and opposition leaders who refuse to condemn this violence, who, who pretend it didn't happen or turn a blind eye or who excuse it in some form or other. So for many of these, these poorer sectors of society, uh, they remember what the repression was like, the real repression that was like before the Chavez era, and they fear what will happen if this right-wing opposition comes to power, particularly if they don't come to power through 
through some more democratic means. And if they don't, you know, one thing is coming to power via an election and a, and a peaceful transfer of power. A different thing is, a, you know, essentially a coup government or a government backed by some kind of foreign intervention and the kind of, you know, rampage that we, we might see happen. And this would be nothing new uh, in, in South America, unfortunately. It was only a few decades ago that we saw this kind of thing happening country after country, Chile, Argentina, Peru, Bolivia. And, and we very much hope, although we've already seen the beginnings of a, a couple of those kind of coups, although on a smaller scale in Honduras uh, and the disaster that Honduras is today, we saw a similar parliamentary coup in Paraguay, a parliamentary coup as well in Brazil, and the kind of vicious social uh, attacks that have been happening uh, since then. And Venezuela will only be worse in those situations, given the highly polarised nature and the very profound of the country and the very profound nature of the changes that have been occurring in Venezuela over the last 15, 20 years. Has there been any word from the military about how they're feeling about the situation? Obviously, it's always very difficult. A military is generally a very secretive organisation or a very tight-knit organisation. Certainly, even after three months of sustained sort of attack against the security forces, there's been very little evidence of any kind of fractures in the military. Uh, I don't want to therefore say that there clearly isn't. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert in, in military affairs in, in Venezuela. But I, I think that it, it would be fair to say that a large section of the high command of the military and also of a lot of the rank-and-file soldiers who themselves are from poorer families, who themselves have been, you know, lived through the process of what has occurred uh, under the Chavez era and, and, and under Maduro, also, you know, do not want to see the Venezuelan military return to the Venezuelan military of old. And that is the Venezuelan military that in 1989, when the poor people did actually come out onto the streets, when the poor people did actually come out to protest against economic policies of, of, the, government, of the government of the day, against the economic crisis, against hunger and against poverty, saw the Venezuelan military come out onto the street. And depending on whose estimates you, you believe, anywhere from between 300 to 3,000 people were massacred in the space of three days. Now, compare that to, you know, what, what is occurring now, and we see where the real repression lies. And you know, I think a lot of the Venezuelan military also don't want to see that their institution return to basically becoming a, a body of repression against ordinary people in Venezuela. Finally, Fred, you'll be in Melbourne in a couple of days' time for a forum. This Saturday, there's a, a range of solidarity organisations uh, that are supporting and sponsoring a, a forum. We'll be holding a, a multicultural centre in, in Elizabeth Street, uh, there in the, in the centre of the city, as well as myself speaking. Uh, more importantly, we'll have speakers directly from Venezuela uh, who will be reporting you know, on the ground of what's been occurring there. We'll be speaking via video hookup. And we'll also have an, an activist from the Latin America Solidarity Network, from LASNET, uh, who's just returned from Venezuela to also provide some real eyewitness accounts. And so, of course, we hope this to be a very important open space for discussion. Uh, unfortunately, people from the Venezuelan far-right community here in Australia don't seem to want to tolerate open discussion and debate, just like in Venezuela they want to shut it down, they want to try and shut it down here. And so we've already begun to receive threats and campaigns to try to shut down our, our meeting. Uh, but we hope to encourage as many people to come along and actually hear about what's been happening in Venezuela. As I said, from those that are living it on the ground, uh, from those that have just been there uh, in, in, in recent times, to really break through a lot of the media distortions about what is occurring there. OK, thanks for that, Fred. Uh, thank you. And that was Fred Fuentes, one of the speakers at the Multicultural Hub, which is next Saturday at 2pm. It's 506 Elizabeth Street in the city. 
if you'd like to get more information, I'd advise you to ring 96398622. And it's my sad duty to announce the death of um, Brian McKinlay, a valued part of Tuesday Home Time. Brian passed away last Thursday after a relatively short illness. On the program next week, I'll be researching some of his earlier interviews and there were many, many looking at history from every part of the world and all different centuries and decades. So that'll be on the program next week. It'll be sad farewell to a person who was a, a great contributor to Tuesday Home Time. So that's all for today, but I will be back, as I said, next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.